1: overwhelmed by investing if you're anything like us the hardest part is getting started that's why we created the investing for beginners podcast our goal is to help simplify money so it can work for you we invite guests to demystify investing at least try to be setting aside like the minimum 10 percent into the 401k We'll teach you the basics of the market. Yeah, I think compound interest should be at the start of any discussion about investing. And We've had investment professionals who teach in a simple way.
2: A valuation-driven bear market. You know, we, we haven't really seen yet, and I think everyone's thinking about it, but we haven't really
1: seen yet. Our Q&A episodes feature questions from listeners just like you. So what do you think about the situation with ETBI, which is Activision. I'm Dave Ahern, and I'm Andrew Sather, and we hope you join us on the Investing for Beginners podcast on the Investing for Beginners podcast. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you, now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? how could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls.
0: Planky County 911. There's a man at my back door, he's trying to get in.
1: What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com.
2: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, a scientific examination of the most important relic in Christianity, the Holy Shroud of Turin, the supposed burial cloth of Jesus
3: Christ. If it's real, this means that there is a God who died for our sins, And it also means that we are responsible for our sins and we need to answer to this God. Well, of course, human nature doesn't want to do that. And so you simply deny that this was a resurrection event.
0: This podcast is brought to you by BreakBiz. If you own a business or you've dreamt of starting one, there's a helpful free guide with 36 business power tools proven to boost sales, increase income, simplify your life, and give you better results with less effort. Best of all, this business toolbox is yours absolutely free, and these are useful online tools that make doing almost anything a lot easier. Just visit FreeBusinessToolbox.com and grab your copy. Yeah, I know, there are a lot of websites that offer you a special deal on something, but then they stick you in some recurring program. But this isn't like that. There's no hidden thing to try. Bright Biz is giving away these guides free of charge as a means of putting their best foot forward. But all good things must come to an end. So don't wait. Grab your free guide today. Visit FreeBusinessToolbox.com. FreeBusinessToolbox.com.
2: Here's Richard Serrett.
0: We are now nicely into the Easter season, Lent, the 40 days leading up to Holy Week, and it's always a struggle giving up favorite things to deny oneself during this time of year. It's supposed to be hard. My one son, always the clever negotiator, announced he was giving up Brussels sprouts for Lent. Of course, he never eats them anyway. But actually, he and his brother are doing very well. They each gave up chocolate, and I'm very proud of them. Now, I gave up dairy. No milk in my morning coffee is a huge deal for me. I can't enjoy my coffee uh, without milk. Now, of course, the idea is that by struggling or suffering, it helps to remind us of Christ's suffering on the cross. Kind of hard, though, to talk about giving up milk in my morning coffee in the same breath as the crucifixion, I know. However, at Easter, I always enjoy talking about what for me is a favorite topic, the Holy Shroud of Turin. It is a remarkable relic. The Shroud of Turin, if you don't know, is this linen cloth that bears the image of a crucified man, a man that millions believe to be Jesus of Nazareth. Is it really a cloth that wrapped his crucified body, or is it simply a medieval forgery, a hoax perpetrated by some clever artist? My guest is a biology professor at a Christian college. He believes the shroud is authentic and that it can be demonstrated scientifically. Not only that, but that this linen cloth contains evidence of a resurrection event. Gary Chang received his Ph.D. in Invertebrate Neurobiology from the University of Toronto in 1982 and presently studies reproductive physiology in blood-sucking insects. Besides his teaching and research in biology, he is the director of the Arthur Custance Center for Science and Christianity, a center which explores the relationship between science and Scripture. He's also the author of The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Gary Chang, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
3: I'm um, doing very well, Richard. Nice to be here.
0: Likewise. Hello, Pascha. Uh So... How long have you been investigating the Shroud from a scientific perspective?
3: Uh, probably not that long, maybe at most 10 years.
0: And prior to that, was it simply an article of faith for you?
3: Uh, it was an, not an article of faith. It was, um, it was a curiosity. Um, I first encountered the Shroud back in 1991 at a, a very interesting conference that really had nothing to do with the shroud per se it was a conference on faith and science that was held by the pascal center here at redeemer university college and in that conference we had a number of very uh, well-known uh, international speakers coming in to talk about faith and science. Now, that was back in 1991 when faith and science was, as a discipline, was just starting to take off, and it has really mushroomed since then. And you can get a lot of uh, a work done on faith and science in different in different universities. But at that time, it was relatively new. And during that conference, there was one person called Thaddeus Tren, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but uh, he presented a a talk simply entitled the holy shroud of turin why science can't cope with it and i thought that was strange uh that that he said you know the the title of the talk and when i went to the talk that's the first time i learned about the holy shroud of turin and that in 1991 that it was still reeling from the 1988 carbon 14 dating which which showed that it was a fake and uh... and he was simply explaining why the carbon fourteen dating could be wrong, uh, could be wrong, and the reason why scientists simply can't cope with this thing because it has a possible supernatural origin. And so that's where I, got, I first heard about it, but essentially I put it aside for a number of years as I started to get more involved in the origins issue, that is evolution versus creation, because I am a biology professor. And it wasn't until more recently that I started to use the shroud as another means to talk about faith and science, rather than just looking at the origins debate. So it's really been quite interesting just having this one particular object you can look at, rather than the vast array of information on origins.
0: Uh, Just give me uh, and my listeners a quick overview, a a physical description of this piece of linen cloth.
3: Uh, Well, most people these days know about it. uh, Back in 1991, we didn't have the internet, and so uh, you know a lot of people didn't know about it. But essentially, what it is, it's um, a cloth, a linen cloth. just three and a half feet wide, approximately three and a half feet wide, uh, and it's about 14 feet long. So it's a very narrow strip of cloth that might have been used for a you know as a tablecloth for a long rectangular table. So that's what it looks like. Uh, but what distinguishes this cloth from any other cloth is that it has imprinted on it the negative image or photographic image of a crucified man both his entire front and his entire back and so for centuries it has been considered to be the authentic burial cloth of christ and the image on it is thought to be that of christ and it is also thought to have been created by some sort of event during the resurrection that resulted in these very faint burn marks that created the image.
0: And the, the image, as you point out, is very faint, not even mm-hmm. almost imperceptible uh, to the naked yeah. eye as to what it is, particularly if you're standing up very close.
3: Yeah. So, well, what they say is that it, it lacks contrast. And uh, and so because it lacks contrast, your eye doesn't pick it up very well.
0: But that all changed early, uh, early late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, in a series yeah. of photographs by Seconda Pia. Explain.
3: Yes, that's right. Um, in 1898, uh, the Shroud was being brought out it, for display. Again, it's, I should also mention it is found in the city of Turin, or Torino, as we, uh English-speaking uh, world knows it. And it's brought out very seldom, but it was brought out in 1898 for a display in order to mark the 400th anniversary that it was. Uh, it was in Turin. So before Turin it was other places, but uh, 400 years before uh, 1898, it uh, that's when it came to turn. And so it was brought out for display. Well, in 1898, photography was starting to be developed as technology. And uh, Secunda Pia was asked to take a picture of it. And essentially, he, he was an amateur photographer, but he had a very good experience, a lot of experience taking photographs. And... Um, and so at that time using film photography you 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 have this large camera you expose the camera to your image and that image gets burnt onto a plate or a negative inside the camera then you take that plate and you go to a dark room and you treat it with chemicals so that where the light had hit will start to turn black and so you will have then in your developing tray what's called the negative of the image you took and the image you took the real life image is the positive and secundapia has done this thousands of times and so and he knew that when he develops the negative the negative is reversed in color in um, light to the positive of course they didn't have color at that time and the negative always appeared less real than the positive and you couldn't make out things very well in the negative, you have to actually then process the negative to reverse the process uh, of the negative in the dark room to get back to the positive. And then when you got the positive then you see you see the image in real life. Well when he went when he finally got a picture of the shroud and got it the negative into the his dark room and was developing it, what appeared before him wasn't a negative he expected. Instead what appeared uh... in the negative was uh... was what would be we he would know as a positive so he immediately knew first of all that what was on the shroud was not a painting in any way instead it was a photographic negative and when he took a picture of the photographic negative he got a positive and so what he saw developing in his tray was actually the real picture of what christ looked like in the tomb and he knew immediately no, he was the first person to see what Christ looked like since Christ ascended back in the first century.
0: So with a negative image on the shroud, mm-hmm. uh, that would certainly have to rule out a hoax, would it not? I mean, even if it, the the linen cloth dates back to the 12th or 13th right. century, right. how would they know how to paint a negative image?
3: Well, it, it's interesting how um, people who... who don't want to believe this i mean if it's real this means that there is a god who died for our sins and it also means that we are responsible for our sins and we need to answer to this god well of course human nature doesn't want to do that and so you simply deny that this was a resurrection event and um, there are some people who still believe it's a painting uh, that painting theory has been ruled out ever ever since 1898, and yet there's still people who still believe it's a painting. Uh, I get I, anyway. <laughs> uh, with respect to ruling it out as being a, f- a fake, you know, could could someone in the 1800s, or not the 1800s, in the 1300s when it was first recorded to actually appear in medieval uh, Europe, could someone back then have created a photograph, and there are a couple of people who have suggested that Leonardo da right. Vinci did this, but when you actually read their accounts, it's ludicrous. And then when you find out where they get their information from, they get it from their spirit guides. So, <laughs> but these, <laughs> but these people really believe this because you can't believe in Jesus Christ as being resurrected from the dead. And so, no, it. If you're asking me, is this foolproof, uh, you know, is this evidence that completely rules out the possibility of forgery? No, it's not, because if you don't want to believe it's real, you'll always find some sort of theory to help support that.
0: Right. It, uh, describe how the wounds that are apparent uh, on this image correspond with the gospel account of a crucifixion.
3: Okay, well, there are probably... Um, with respect specifically to the crucifixion, that is being nailed to the cross, and also the account of the spear in the side to check to see whether or not Jesus was dead, and that's from John. Um, the, there are two sets of wounds that correspond with this. Um, back in when, when in the 18, in 1898, when Secunda Pia's picture came out, uh, a lot of people were still very skeptical about it. And, in, and uh, in fact, they uh, accused Secundopeia the of some sort of trickery, uh, or he made a mistake. And, of course, the best way to try and tell people that, you'll um, show people that, I, no, I didn't make a mistake, this is my negative. The best way is to take another picture of the shroud, right? But it turns out that the shroud was put away in... 1898, after Secundipia took the picture, and the person who owned the shroud refused to let it be shown again until 33 years later. <laughs> and so, hmm. so, so Secundipia had to wait for 33 years before he was vindicated. But that first picture was shared amongst people, and some people looked at it, particularly some surgeons and said, and, anatom- and uh, anatomist said, if this is a fake then there must be something that the painter put in that doesn't correspond to what we can do, no scientifically or forensically. Well, one of the things that was that is very odd about the uh, image on the shroud compared to any medieval picture is that the wounds to the in the hand, the nails, do not go through the palms; they go through the wrists. Uh, medieval paintings put the uh, nails through the palms. Um, but, they just, but a person by the name of Vignon was looking at this. He was in in, uh, in Paris, and he was looking at the picture that Pia did. And he one of the things he observed is that, yeah, the nails don't go through the palms, they go through the wrists. Well, it turns out that it had to go through the wrists, or else the body wouldn't hold to the cross. Uh, so it was forensically correct to put it through the wrists, but all painters in the medieval times always put it through the palms. So that's one thing that vindicated this as being legitimate. Another is the, uh, the um, wound in the side. The wound in the side um, actually uh, shows uh, the blood uh, and uh, at that wound uh, exactly where uh, it would have been put in by a Roman uh, soldier piercing uh, Christ at that time well john the the John the uh, writer said that when the wound when the spear was pushed into the side, he saw water and blood come out, and that 's how it's described. And many people don't realize that that's what would actually happen. They think that, you know, corpses don't bleed and, and these sorts of things. But um, another person did a, a study where he took corpses and punctured their sides in the same fashion, and he got water and blood coming out. And if you look on the shroud, the blood stains are in such a fashion that there it looks to be water and blood and not just blood
0: which is what happens with post-mortem bleeding
3: yes and so um and so again a painter would never have known this so those two wounds in themselves are vindicate quite clearly or show quite clearly that this had to be done in the way it's described in scripture another point that is mentioned uh, uh, about the wounds and a lot of people don't realize this is that christ was not just crucified he was also scourged and and uh and that it was apparently something that was unusual usually if you're going to be crucified you you don't want to weaken the person you want them to suffer really badly so you put them on the cross as healthy as possible uh to scourge a person you're actually weakening them and uh, the torture would not be as long well, this particular body shows the scourge marks, <laughs> and so this individual, unlike most people who would have been crucified, was actually scourged before he was crucified, just like Christ was. Right,
0: chained to a and, post, and uh right. and, Roman cat-of-nine-tails.
3: That's right, and well, it's maybe not nine-tails, but, uh, but the actual imprints of and the welts that were left on his back uh and the blood stains that were uh, transferred to the um to the cloth show that the type of instrument that was used was exactly the sort of instrument the uh, romans used at that time uh, the pattern represents that he was chained probably or held to a post and the whippers were about even with him on either side and they beat him uh, alternately. And that's, that's what the pattern shows. No painter would have been ever, able to ever have done that.
0: Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or well, what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos. I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Golds. And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod.
0: We all enjoy a little mystery. Every other week, one strange thing presents forgotten stories from America's newspaper archives. They all have something in common. A single element that can't quite be explained. Join us on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about a man who was literally stricken with genius. A 21st century child who remembered piloting a World War II bomber. A mysterious, unidentifiable blob in Texas. And then there was the lizard man stalking through small-town South Carolina. From cryptids and disappearances to modern-day miracles, one strange thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. Uh, and what about the, uh, the the bleeding from around the uh, the head? We see trickles of blood coming down the face.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, this would again, this would indicate something that is associated with the description of Christ's crucifixion and not just a regular crucifixion. Uh, these would have been these would have been caused, obviously, to get blood. You have to have a puncture. So these would have been – could be explained by Christ having the crown of thorns on his head and causing these large gashes, which would continue to leak blood uh, even after the cloth was placed on him.
0: Now, a traditional uh, Jewish burial at the time, uh, Mm -hmm. women were were sent to the tomb, family members, usually females, sent to the tomb to wash and anoint the body. So someone might say, well, wait a minute. Why would there be all of this blood? Why wouldn't there be fresh linen and so forth?
3: Yeah. Um, I've had a a real fun time with that. <laughs> uh I've gotten so many I've read so many accounts of how it should have been wrapped and and it should have been wrapped this way and and uh, in order to get the image and what might uh, you know the what uh, uh what state was the cloth versus the body. Well, and they've talked about traditional Jewish burials. <laughs> The first thing you need to keep in mind is that this was not a traditional Jewish burial, because it wasn't a burial. Uh-huh. People don't get that through their head. They weren't burying Christ. They were putting him in the morgue.
0: Excellent distinction, important distinction.
3: And people, and and when I started to examine the shroud, and I said, okay, um, I'm a scientist, I I go by the evidence, and I try to put together a theory to explain the evidence. And I come up many times with what-if scenarios, because you have to have what-if scenarios to start doing any sort of work. And so I said, well, what if the shroud is real, Okay, people are worried that, you know, how do you get the, the image on it? Because if it's real, it wrapped Christ. Okay, that's where they're making a mistake. If it's real, it didn't wrap Christ, it covered him. So he wasn't wrapped, he was covered.
1: Mm, right. And
3: right. and uh, And so if that's the case, then you need to work out the scenario that could explain why he was just covered rather than wrapped. And then things start to all fit together. Once you realize that the burial in the tomb was purely temporary, and I have to scream at people, no, it doesn't have to be a traditional Jewish burial, because it wasn't a traditional Jewish burial. Now, they prepared for a traditional burial, a Jewish burial, and the body was waiting in the tomb for that to happen. That's why the the uh, the women came back with spices. They came back to wrap the body because carrying it from the cross to the tomb, they had to wrap it to get it to the tomb. They may not have even used the shroud to wrap it at the tomb at the at the um at the base of the cross. They might have. Uh, known that they had no time left, they had to get it from the cross to a temporary place, and and they had to put it in a place where animals weren't going to get it. Uh, happens that this guy had his tomb ready to go, <laughs> and so uh, never been used before. He so said, "Well, put him in there." And so he was wrapped at the base of the cross with spices, but this was with a te- for t- temporary transport to the tomb when he got to the t- they got him to the tomb they unwrapped him and prepared him to be then wrapped by the women when the women had time to do it after the sabbath
0: but of course, by the time they got there, prepared to wrap and anoint the body, yeah. he'd already resurrected. He right. <laughs> right. There was no body. It was no his body. joke on them. <laughs> Speaking of tricks, if you own a dog, it's always great fun teaching them new tricks. But it's also important how to teach them, of course, to behave. Wouldn't it be great if you could develop your dog's hidden intelligence to eliminate bad behavior and create the obedient, well-behaved pet of your dreams? Well, a woman named Adrienne Faricelli, a professional certified dog trainer, has helped hundreds of dog owners train their dogs to be well-behaved, obedient, loving pets by bringing out that hidden intelligence. You can quickly eliminate any behavioral problem your dog has, no matter how badly you think it's ingrained, no matter what kind of dog you have. The science behind this is quite simple. You may have heard of neuroplasticity in the human brain. Our brains are capable of learning new behaviors. Well, your dog's brain has that same plasticity. With the right mental stimulation that Adrian teaches, any dog's brain will become more open and receptive to learning. Your dog will listen to you and understand what you want it to do. And then when this happens, bad behaviors simply fade away as more desirable ones appear in their place. So if you want to check out this remarkable dog training system, just visit realbusinessbargains.com. That's realbusinessbargains.com. realbusinessbargains.com.
2: If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. (laughs) Conspiracy Unlimited With Richard Serrett
1: I'm Andrew Gold, a fallen BBC journalist Interviewing the heretics and rebels Brave enough to speak out against mainstream narratives Here's Coleman Hughes, John Ronson And the Trigonometry Podcast guys Bringing controversy to the fore How'd you feel if a person of a different race moved in next door? Spent a while with a politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan. The system punishes people for wrong think. It's heartbreaking. Here's My Unorthodox Life Netflix star Julia Hart on getting out of a Hasidic Jewish cult.
3: Why can't I be okay with being silent and subservient? Everyone else is.
1: I'm biologist Richard Dawkins on trans activism. It's perfectly legitimate to say, I am a man,
0: but I feel feminine, but to then say, therefore I am a woman. Is just a betrayal of
1: language. Now it's your turn. Rebel against the mainstream and find a home in this sensible alternative space by subscribing to Heretics Podcast.
0: Gary Chang, professor emeritus of biology and author of The Holy Shroud of Turin is with me. Someone might say, all right, so let's assume that, or let's uh, acknowledge that the, the image on the shroud is that of a crucifixion. Victim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then, how do we make the leap that this is the um, the image of Jesus Christ on that shroud?
3: Well, um, if we knew exactly what Jesus looked like, then maybe we can compare the uh, image of the face uh, with that of Christ. Okay, but we don't have that. Uh, the only way that we or what we have left though is actually very strong circumstantial evidence and that is we know how the body was treated and we know from the descriptions in the gospels how christ was treated and every which way christ was treated is shown up on that image so the correlation is perfect so it could not be anybody else, unless there was someone treated exactly the same way, and we don't know about them.
0: Now, we don't have, obviously, an ex- we don't have a description of Jesus in the Bible, we don't no. have photographs, but there are paintings, mm-hmm. not, not contemporary paintings, but, but do they hold any clues?
3: Um, the only paintings that hold clues... Would be when the shroud appeared uh, to um, uh, in public, and the problem. And, and so, with respect to uh, relating other paintings of the Christ figure, uh, what we do know is that up until uh, about medieval Europe, when uh, up to about the time when. Uh, this image was supposed to be seen which would be around the 1200s 1100s 1200s in uh, Constantinople Um, they people in medieval Europe painters always painted Christ as really a boy figure Um, fair um, young and then a change happened and you notice that the paintings changed And if you look at the paintings, they all bear some sort of similarities to the image on the shroud as it's viewed on the shroud, not through a negative of a photography, but as it's viewed on the shroud. And so that gives an indication that the shroud was around long before 1200s, long before what the Carbon-14 people said the shroud could be. But that doesn't verify that it's Christ, because people were taking a look at the Shroud and then drawing Christ based on that. Right, but uh,
0: there are certain icons, for example, uh, of Christ that date to, I believe, maybe the 4th century uh, that obviously have been directly influenced by the Shroud, as you say. So what that does is it certainly takes the the Carbon-14 dating— yeah. Way, way back, because that said, no, 13th century.
3: Right. Well, the carbon 14 dating is, is wroth with uh, so many errors. It's in, the, the amount of errors in it is absolutely incredible. And if people were logically thinking at this time, and they weren't, and, and some of the people who are actually there admit now, no, they weren't logically thinking. Uh, they were caught up in the moment. It was a really, you know, Uh, One of these uh, watershed moments in the history, particularly in the history of carbon-14 dating. Uh, But people look back at it now and say, yeah, it was just so full of errors that if we had did the same thing now, people would be a lot more level-headed and say there's something wrong with it.
0: So the the carbon-14 dating was conducted by taking samples from the linen... And mm-hmm. what, but, but I think there's video that was taken of yep. the actual, and, and someone mm-hmm. said, aha, they did, there's something they did wrong. What was that?
3: Well, uh, what they did wrong uh, is that they took the samples only from one place, meaning that they really didn't take samples. They took one very small sample and they took it from the worst possible place on the shroud. It was in an area that was already damaged. It was an area that already had shown some sort of mending. Some people argue that it doesn't show that mending, but it did have some mending because they sewed the shroud uh, onto a backing because it was starting to tear. And so it would have been stitched all over the place in different places to make sure it didn't tear anymore and that's where the sample was taken from it was also taken from a place where they had already moved something back in 1973 and so it was already damaged in that respect and already handled and uh and so <laughs> so they were supposed to take the the original protocol was the, to use two different types of carbon-14 methods and to involve something like eight different uh carbon-14 laboratories and they were supposed to take something like six or so samples from different areas of the shroud, just to make sure that they got what a, they didn't get any what would be called false positives. It turned out at the end that they went down to just a single sample, and when and they only chose three laboratories, and of the three laboratories, in fact, all the three laboratories threatened to pull out. And when they threatened to pull out because the protocol wasn't being followed anymore, uh, the people of the shroud said, okay, we'll ask somebody else to do it. And then they jumped back in. Quite frankly, if, a, if if they were looking at a cloth that buried a uh, that covered a pharaoh or something like that, they wouldn't have even been bothered. They just that go off because you're not doing it right. Uh, but this was the shroud. This was you know, in a sense, the holy grail, and they needed and they didn't want to miss out on that. So against their own best judgment, they were part of what really was a fiasco. And uh one another thing that's interesting is that although this was being filmed uh and uh you it was vi- being videotaped, uh the sample, which is a very tiny sample, was then cut into th- was then taken out of the room and it was supposed to be cut into three pieces, and each piece would be given to one of the three laboratories, okay? Uh, and they're supposed to see all this happening. Well, it turns out that when they cut the piece from the shroud, the two people that in turn then cut the pieces to give to the lab- laboratories left the room. They, people actually did not see them put those samples into those containers, now I'm not accusing anyone of defrauding anybody, but it's just a curious thing. <laughs> uh, and then when they came back and they uh, gave it to the to the um, the um, laboratories, the laboratories then took it away, and it took another year before they came up with their eventual um, data.
0: Right. So uh, the, a number of instances failing to follow proper protocol, yeah. which just shows whether or not someone was up to some skullduggery, it just shows a general sort of sloppiness with the way they handled the material. uh,
3: Exactly. It was sloppiness. But as I try to point out in my book, is a lot of people don't understand this. is that let's say you were a custodian of the shroud. You were somehow personally involved with it. Let's say you believe that every single bit of that shroud actually covered the body of Jesus Christ. The question I would have for you how much of that would you be willing to cut away and destroy? Probably right. none. <laughs> so you got now human nature involved. They were supposed to have taken samples from all over the shroud, and they eventually they argued. In fact, the two people who were supposed to take the samples when everybody was ready and the cameras going, they argued. And it took over an hour for them to eventually come to agreement as to where they're going to take it from, and they took it from the worst possible place.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's the, the place, most. Yeah, that's the most problematic aspect of the the test was that they yeah. took it from an area of the shroud that appeared to have been uh, kind of a repair. It uh,
3: might have been repaired. It might have been damaged. Uh, there's a I, right now that's fueled a huge host of. Uh, of papers and people discussing about what exactly happened Then there's some people who are talking about uh, a rewoven patch uh, other people claim no they've looked at the shroud closely and they don't see any reweaving but you've got to remember that the patch that might have had the reweaving was removed <laughs> and so what's left on the shroud may not show a reweaving you know so All right yeah, they, there are just so many ifs and ends and buts about this.
0: Talk to me about the pollen samples on the Shroud and why they're significant.
3: Well, the, um, Max Fry is the person who was involved in collecting pollen samples. And he reported to have shown that the pollen samples that he collected were, you know, there were a lot that were, um, uh, were from uh, medieval Europe uh, because that's where the Shroud was. Uh, but you also have to remember that it wasn't brought out very often. But uh, but he did find uh, certain uh, pollen samples that were actually specific for Palestine and weren't found in medieval Europe or in Europe now, and uh, so that was quite uh, exciting. Uh, the only problem with that information is that before anything could have been before he was able to publish it, um, he died. He died unexpectedly. And uh, quite frankly, that information has been lost uh, from history. On the other hand, there has been follow-up uh, studies, and people have still even now verified that there are some pollen grains on the cloth that, from plants that are only found in the Jerusalem-Palestine uh, area. So it doesn't say it's the Shroud of Christ, but it does say it is possible because it was at one time found in the location where Christ was.
0: Is there anything particular with the weave of the uh, of the linen that that dates it specifically to 1st century uh Palestine?
3: Well, apparently um that that's a bit of a um well, I'd like to say well, let me uh, rephrase this. The answer is yes. The weave does indicate that it is probably from that time period. Uh, There are a number of textile experts who have weighed in on this and textile historians, but the bottom line is, is that the weave pattern cannot disqualify it. It doesn't prove it is the thing but it doesn't disqualify it either.
0: Right. The other curious thing, and I believe some technology developed by NASA was employed at a certain point. Oh, yeah. A, and mm. they discovered something most remarkable about that image, something about it's a three-dimensional quality.
3: Yeah. This is... <clears throat> people talk about um, the authenticity of the shroud, the cloth itself, you know, is it real? Could have been around the time of Christ and that. All that is really uh, window dressing. The thing that tells us that this had to be created by a supernatural event that, that influenced the physical world is that we, at this time, still cannot produce that image. For one thing, the image is a photographic negative, which completely rules out any sort of painter. And the other thing is that the image itself holds information in it that gives it a three-dimensional character, which doesn't happen when you take a regular picture. So Secundepia might have jumped to the the, uh, fact that he had in his plate what appeared to be a positive rather than a negative, but he didn't have the technology to actually show that it had more than just that. NASA developed a camera, the VP8 analyzer. Uh it's not a camera, it's a, it analyzes digital uh electrical or uh radio information that comes from satellites. And it takes that information and he creates uh, what appears to be three-dimensional pictures of surfaces of planets and things like that. And that's how we get the images from places like Mars and these distant planets. But it doesn't take a picture and then in a sense, uh, um, send the picture back. Instead, it takes uh, electronic information and sends the electronic information back, and the VP8 analyzer then converts that to what uh, the satellite was seeing. Well, if you take any two-dimensional photograph, any photograph of a person, and you put it into a VP8 analyzer, you will have coming out what looks like sort of the you can still recognize the person, but his forehead might be indented, his cheeks might be out further, his nose might be to one side because it doesn't give you the three-dimensional uh, quality. but if you information, but if you take the picture of the shroud and you do the same thing for the face, what comes out is a three-dimensional perfectly three-dimensional picture of the face. That is embedded as information in that image. How it got on it, we still don't know.
0: But you have but, a pretty good idea.
3: Well, I have my theories. <laughs> I, I have, for one thing, the, the if it's just a photograph, okay, then the burst of energy from the body as a result of whatever happened at the resurrection could have created that those burn marks but it's more than just a photograph it also it has this three-dimensional image, information and to get that it had to be more than just a single burst it had to be bursts at different angles and so <clears throat> i am now toying with the idea that there could have been a very sudden burst release of energy, but it might have happened in a series of very short bursts, which from slightly different angles, <clears throat> which then would result in the three-dimensional image in that particular photograph.
0: So light coming from inside the body, radiating out yeah. at all mm-hmm. different angles, and would would that produce radiation?
3: Oh, Yeah. Anytime you mucking around with the atomic, uh, uh, you know, the molecules that make up uh, matter, you're going to be releasing energy. Uh, that's how they create atomic bombs. But the difference here is that this wasn't an atomic bomb that blew up the, um, blew up the tomb. And if in fact it was the type of radiation we know, <clears throat> it would have been so strong it would have burned. The, right through the shroud and not put this image on it. But it's something that is is obviously possible. We haven't got the technology to produce it yet. Maybe we will. I mean, that's the way science works. We look into the future. And if we didn't have things like science fiction, we wouldn't look into the future and find new things. So some people might think of this as like sort of science fiction, but it's not fiction. It's there. Uh, now it's time that we accept that it's there and find ways of how it got there.
0: Is it possible to test the linen for traces of some sort of radiation that shouldn't be there?
3: <clears throat> oh, people have thought that, um, but they have tried different um, bombarding uh, material. Uh, with radiation and it just uh, and uh, all the work that they've done it or even heating it to see if heating it increased the carbon-14 content Uh, but I think they're simply uh, you know hitting their heads against a wall because the carbon-14 was bad to begin with what they really need to do if they're depending so much on carbon-14 is to do carbon-14 properly but there's no way the Church is even going to allow that to happen. There's, I, I think in in one sense they've said, science, you've had your chance, you're never going to believe regardless, so why should we let you at it anymore?
0: Talk briefly about your, your efforts to elevate this study to more academic levels.
3: Oh, okay. Uh, that has been more of a challenge than I thought it would be, um, because um, I, I have spoken to some theologians, uh, that's really who we need now. We need theologians and philosophers to come in and help us make some sense out of the science. Uh, the scientists have gone... They're still looking at different things they might be able to do, but as long as the shroud is sort of held captive and they can't touch it, there's really not much that you can do on the scientific side. Um, there are some scientific tests that could test for age in other ways but again they need to get at the shroud and even though the shroud won't be destroyed with these new types of tests that there's the people just won't let them do that okay and and I guess with the history that they've had it's sort of understandable Um, but now I forgot where I was going with this
0: we were describing Uh, your efforts to
3: oh my efforts okay Uh, so so What I've been trying to do is to, since I am familiar with faith and science from the academic setting and different faith and science conferences that are uh, continually being held here in North America... um, i wanted to uh, get some theologians some academics you know even some grad students to to take a look at this and see what they would say could say about it well i was speaking to one theologian uh, down at mac uh at mcmaster divinity school and quite frankly i think he summed it up for all theologians i said to him you know i'm doing this on the shroud and i want to get theologians involved would you take a look at it as a theologian you're a trained theologian i'm not But as a theologian and tell me something about it. And he simply looked at me and said why? (laughs) He he said I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Why do I need to look at the shroud? Mm. And that was it.
0: Remarkable.
3: There is just, there's no impetus to do that. Another thing that he was afraid of, which I was, it blew me away after we were talking for about a half hour or so, I'm trying to convince him, you know, you're yeah, to, to be part of what I'm trying to do. He said to me, he said, Well it looks like you're trying to bring in the creationist agenda. Hmm. And I'm going, What? <laughs> I haven't talked anything about creation. So you know, okay. So so that is the perception out there. How do I get over that? I don't know. I've got A few more months to think about it the conference isn't going to be until next year i know i've got the shroud scientists on my side and they're going to still have this conference um to discuss the science but they themselves also want to have theologians because they know this is something that stretches beyond science into the supernatural so this is the best place if you can ever think of it it's the best place to actually bring faith and science together it's far better than the origins debate.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, it's such a life uh, or faith affirming uh, relic and I'm I've sort of lost count of the number of people that I've talked to who uh, who have written about the Shroud that were actually formerly atheists until yeah. they began to delve mm-hmm. into it. They they initially set out to debunk the Shroud yeah. and ended up becoming uh, believers. Before I let you go, Gary, how do people get a hold of your book, The Holy Shroud of Turin?
3: Okay, The Holy Shroud of Turin, you can uh, order it from our website, which is uh, www.custance.org. Org and customs is spelled C U S T A N C E dot org. Just go to the order books page and uh, my book will be there.
0: Terrific. Thank you again. Thank you. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Well, time to dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs. And I'm going to give you the lowdown on what's coming up on Wednesday's episode. Just a reminder that if you want to get in on the weekly draw and a chance to win a copy of my CD, Strange Planet, Volumes 1 and 2, All you have to do is rate and review this podcast, grab a screenshot of that, email it to me at richardserrett1 at gmail.com. Don't forget to include your full name and mailing address, and then it goes into the ginormous cheese puffs jar, and I draw the name of one lucky winner each and every Friday. Good luck and have fun. Once again, I want to congratulate my good friends at Life Extension for their new product, Mega Green Tea Extract. It provides powerful antioxidant effects throughout the body. Green tea contains health-promoting, Polyphenols, including a powerful antioxidant, which has been the subject of extensive scientific research. Why don't you pour on these multiple health benefits? Green tea is a powerful antioxidant. It supports cell membrane integrity, boosts liver detoxification, enhances immune function, and help maintains healthy blood cholesterol, LDL, and triglyceride levels, and much more. Life Extension's Mega Green Tea Extract is decaffeinated, yet it contains more polyphenols in one capsule than seven cups of green tea. Remarkable. The Chinese have used green tea for therapeutic purposes since 2000 BC. More recently, volumes of published scientific findings attest to its multiple health benefits. One capsule a day of Mega Green Tea Extract is all you need. Give your body what it needs. Order right now from Life Extension and save 25%. Just go to SmartClickIdea.com. That's SmartClickIdea.com. SmartClickIdea.com. Coming up next, examining the huge wage disparity in America with the author of Survival of the Richest, Don Jeffries. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.